Hello! Oh, Mrs. Doubtfire. I'm in a zany mood today. It's, it's been a wild morning, so I'm ready to rock and roll. I'm Matt Waters, and uh, this is Show Do Tell, a reading series where we get to meet readers, and uh, we have great lighting as well. Pat <laughs> myself on the back. Uh, I usually like to just read something to, to get us kicked off, and I'm actually going to read something um, out of a novel I'm currently reading called Underworld by Don DeLillo. And, uh, oh fuck. Where the oh, fuck? Uh, shit. <laughs> uh, yeah. My bad. I, I got onto the wrong page. I'll find it. There we go. Maps. Yeah. Sorry about that. It's been that kind of day so far. I'm one more club away from being Michael Douglas and falling down going to a local McDonald's. I guess not a lot of people have seen that classic film. Alright, so this is uh, this is an excerpt from uh, Underworld, and um, I'm a huge baseball fan. I love all the baseball in this book, and this, I thought, was probably uh, the loveliest uh, bit of baseball that I've come across in this book so far. And it's, um, a gentleman has procured the Bobby Thompson home run ball from his son, and uh, has no idea of its value, really, and he's going, he's trying to sell it at, um, the polo grounds where there's uh, fans have lined up outside the stadium to get tickets for Game on the World Series, and, and there's no one there, and he's really disappointed, and he hears something, and uh, has an epiphany. He looks across 155th Street, south to the tenements, and he sees a woman standing under the power of the prayer sign, soliciting her trade. He hears, he hears a sound across the river. What's the point of all the secret codes on a U.S. dollar? except to disconnect you from the people who know the facts. He hears something. He's ready to head home. There's nowhere to go but home unless he finds another bar, and he knows he has to go down the subway and wait for a train in an empty station. Another bring down. Stand there on a long platform waiting, half an hour maybe, and he hears a sound from across the river, far away but clear, the way voices travel exact on the water at night. He stands near the bridge, to approach and listens. Men singing, the sound of a great many voices, some following behind the others, rambunctious and uneven, and he knows the tune. They're singing, riding on a pony. They're singing, stuck a feather in his cap. They're singing, called it macaroni. And he hears laughter drift across the river and begins to understand, finally, it wasn't the bartender who made the mistake. Phil never said that people would be lining up at the polo grounds. He never named the ballpark. It was Manx who made the mistake, because they're lining up at Yankee Stadium just across the river. It's the Giants versus, versus the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, and the voices travel so exact, it's like someone's just whispering to him. He hears a group of fans chanting, say hey, Willie, and of course those are Giant fans, and that's Willie Mays, and they're singing his praises. And he hears the answer and chant from the Yankees fans, with that old Jolton Joe DiMaggio song from before the war, he thinks that they were playing on every radio in the country, we want you on our side. And it's all rough and tumbled and good-natured, and his mood picks up, and he gives the ball a smack with the palm of his hand, where it's tucked in his jacket pocket, the perfect roundness and hardness of an object that's substantial. All right. Great. All right, we're going to kick this off. Let's get this going. Let's get the party started. Yvonne Anderson is a writer and a musician, Currently the singer, songwriter, guitarist of NYC glitch rock band Cyber Attack, 
He's also the inventor of Email Pro, a form of long-running email-based performance art. And he's uh, reading a great essay. Uh, come on up, Thon. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm just going to take a second. Oh, yeah, you're really tall. To do that. <laughs> uh, okay, right, so you heard that I do a couple of different things. I'm in a band called Cyber Attack. Uh, one thing I do in my band is every time we have a show, uh, I hand out floppy disks. And on the floppy disk is a QR code. And if you scan that with your cell phone, uh, you're given this form where you have to put in your email address. And then if you put in your email address later, I email you with a bunch of stuff you can't get on the internet, like songs that haven't been released yet, um, and essays that I've written. That's like my band's cute bullshit thing that we do at shows, is that I write little essays and then distribute them through a QR code on a floppy disk. The reason I'm telling you this is that uh, the piece I'm about to read is like, combines multiple floppy disk essays. So that's the context. Thank you for listening to the context. <laughs> All right, here it is. When I was a sophomore in college, I took a beginner level art class. There were a lot of students in it, but I was one of only two guys. And one day, while we were all sitting around mixing paint colors, the other guy said, the human body starts to hallucinate after five days of no sleep. I remember thinking, please nobody touch that. Please let's not have whatever combo this guy in our class is trying to start. But it was early in the morning and everyone was bored. People wanted to have conversations and this guy with his cryptic message was all we had. So somebody said, how do you know that? And the guy said, it happened to me on a film set. <laughs> and then somebody said, wow, how come? And he said, because they kept needing me to do all this stuff. And at this point, I broke my own rule and spoke. I figured we were in it now, might as well get to the heart of the matter. So I said, why? <laughs> and the guy looked at me and said, because I basically know everything about film. <laughs> And for the rest of college, every time I saw that guy around campus at the gym or whatever, I thought to myself, that's the guy who said, I basically know everything about film. <laughs> and because it was college and I was single, I became preoccupied with the question of whether everyone agreed with me that this dude was pretentious and terrible. But I never asked anyone that directly. I was afraid to bring it up. I didn't want to talk about him and give him the benefit of being talked about. Didn't want to boost his SEO or whatever. So I never actually found out what people thought. I just wondered about it and became agitated. Back on that first day of class, it had been unclear what my classmates were thinking. Nobody said, who the fuck are you? Not even me. We all just sat there and listened to him hold court about the five days of no sleep on the film set. And looking back, I get why we did that. It was easier than taking it on. It was easier than saying, you gotta stop talking until you completely change everything about your personality. <laughs> but at the time, just sitting there and listening to it, it felt like I was giving him more than he deserved. I wondered how many of the chicks in the class were thinking, okay, this guy's sort of interesting. Because what if some of them actually thought that? Like, what if it's this guy's world? 
that became a permanent concern for me. What if the world belongs to the people who introduce themselves by saying, I basically know everything about film? What if the people who say that on average find that they get to keep talking after they say it? What if it's a viable strategy? What are we going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? Well, when I was in college, the answer was to buy my clothes at a military surplus store. Also, I played guitar and I started a hard rock band. I was obsessed with being artistic, but also macho and real. I thought I was an equal opposite force to that guy and his pretensions. I bought a giant punching bag and hung it in the basement. Sometimes, me and my friends would put on boxing gloves and take turns punching each other in the face. I would do that and think to myself, this proves that I am not a pretentious dipshit. I'm not saying anyone else thought that, I'm just telling you what was going on in my head. Also, I decided that I thought being from New Jersey was cool. That became a source of authenticity that I wanted to shove in everyone's face. So, for instance, I started using a huge amount of hair gel all the time. I would flick back my hair like I was on The Sopranos. And then, one night, during the summer after my sophomore year, I drove 100 miles per hour on the Garden State Parkway. I was by myself. I just decided to do it. While it was happening, Cowboys from Hell by Pantera came on the radio. And then, as that was happening, all three digits on the short-range mile counter in my car rolled over to 666. <laughs> I took these events as a sign that my entire understanding of life was correct. I'm doing it, I said to myself. It's all happening. When I got back to school in the fall, my friend Chris wanted to sign up for this music class about the blues. He tried to get me to take it with him. At first, I wasn't super into it. I felt like I'd already covered the blues from taking a million guitar lessons as a teenager. But then I thought, you know, maybe the class would have some good stuff in it about the early days of 666 and about keeping it real. I sensed that the blues was unpretentious, and that was starting to become my whole religion. Also, Chris said that he'd heard the course was easy. So I went to the first class, and the professor said, don't take this if you think it's easy. <laughs> After the class, Chris said, listen, it's definitely easy. <laughs> and I said, well, but the professor said that thing. And Chris said, that's how you know it's easy. <laughs> Do you think they would say anything like that in a real course with math and whatever else? That was enough to convince me. I signed up for the blues under two dangerous assumptions. One, that I already understood the blues from playing rock music, and two, that this would be an easy course. And the crucial piece of evidence here was that the professor said it would not be an easy course. <laughs> Your grade in the blues was based on one midterm and one final. That was it. Musical ability was not tested whatsoever. So like the fact that I could play didn't matter. The tests were the old school kind, which is to say they were tests of knowledge. And when we got to the midterm, it turned out to be that classic scenario from nightmares. As the professor handed out the exams, the students all shook their heads and laughed when they saw it. When I got mine, I saw why. We were all doomed. The first question was, what's Howling Wolf's real name? No one knew that. Was that from class notes? Was that in the reading? No one even knew if there was reading. <laughs> we just came to class and listened to the professor play blues records and talk about blues records. Sometimes he would demonstrate stuff on an acoustic guitar. He wasn't that good. We thought the whole class was just a vibe. 
No one knew what Howling Wolf's real name was. The second question was, what year was Bessie Smith born? I had no idea. At this point, I realized I was about to fail a midterm at an Ivy League school that I had worked really hard to get into. Did that count as having the blues? <laughs> then the midterm had a listening section. The professor played an archival recording of Blind Lemon Jefferson strumming a one-string guitar and muttering incoherently. We were supposed to transcribe the lyrics. In the world of impossible tests, this was some next-level shit. <laughs> So when the final came around, I tried to study better, but I had a not great attitude. It was probably impossible to get a B at this point, so I didn't have the honor student pride that was usually at my back. The goal was simply not to fail. It was like jumping out of a plane and being told, see if you can crash land and break your own legs so that you're not instantly killed. <laughs> I studied in that spirit. I got a C for the course. Part of me wondered if that messed up my ability to walk around like a real dude. I had once judged the guy for saying, I basically know everything about film, and my judgment had been harsh. I had decided it was unforgivable to ever say that. But when I signed up for the class, I assumed I basically knew everything about the blues. So what did that mean about me? What if I was actually the kind of dipshit I thought I hated? What if I was actually not 100% real? I avoided that question as much as possible by going on dates and flirting with girls. Toward the end of college, I started seeing one woman whose major was modern culture and media. She once took me to a screening of an experimental film by a grad student, and I pounced on it. Nothing I've ever said or done, including the blues fiasco, was as full of shit as this is, I said to myself. The filmmaker said during a talkback that his thing was an adaptation of a play by Oscar Wilde, but it was impossible to know that because it had been unintelligible from start to finish. The whole thing was very post. Post-structure, post-narrative, post-modern. By now it had become a point of pride for me that my taste was extremely pre. <laughs> I had no interest in stuff that was deliberately impossible to understand. I opposed anything that did not remind me on some level of Van Halen or the work of Martin Scorsese. The grad student filmmaker had said he considered the Oscar Wilde source material a computer program, and his thing was a virus for that program. <laughs> I looked at the chick I was on a date with and shook my head. There would be no coming back from this. After I graduated, I moved to New York City with my band. I was eager to start life in the big city now that I had worked out my artistic principles with absolute certainty. Having that sort of thing locked down came in handy in the friendly, but also very competitive world of rock musicians starting out in their early 20s. I was a little nervous to find out who my peers were now the college was over. And I noticed early on that a lot of downtown rock groups would say things like, it's just rock and roll, baby. They would stop their songs on stage and restart them if they made mistakes. They would shrug and say, ha ha ha, who gives a fuck? As usual, I considered that to be a moral failure on their part. To me, rock and roll was serious business. I had read that Eddie Van Halen used to perform wearing a t-shirt with an X over the face of Bozo the Clown. The message was, there's no goofing around here. And that was 100% my mentality. Van Halen and Scorsese were equal to the Sistine Chapel, and I forbade my bandmates from ever saying, it's just rock and roll. But pretty soon we encountered other bands who were serious in a different direction. 
Bands whose Facebook profile said stuff like, We're here to save rock and roll, with lead singers who walked around a stage like Jesus Christ. This too was distressing to me. These dudes were serious, but in a messianic, terrible way. I hated them on sight. So through it all, I decided to try to stay in between giving a fuck and not being any kind of savior. My mission, which I considered not pretentious, was to create little verse chorus songs at a masterpiece level and ignore everything else. Rock and roll as an attitude or a lifestyle had nothing to do with it anymore. I was only interested in writing songs that had a flirty, leather jacket charisma that I thought was beautiful. I didn't care about, like, having a message. Meanwhile, taking rock and roll seriously came at a cost. I felt obligated to have an opinion anytime I saw somebody playing guitar solo anywhere. And at band rehearsal, we would get into debates about shit that happened at the Grammys. One time we had a fight over whether it was okay to like Macklemore. Everything was important, and our rehearsal started to feel labored and grim. So as much as I was obsessed with rock songs, sometimes I had this new desire to obliterate them and to obliterate my own principles. I felt full from gorging on the exact thing I had loved my entire life. I wanted to switch to hating it so that later it would be interesting when I loved it again. During shows, I started performing guitar solos that were out of key and full of noisy bullshit on purpose. I wrote a fan letter to Wendy Carlos, the avant-garde composer, and I decided that I understood the work of Yoko Ono without really listening to it. Every once in a while, I would think about the guy who said, I basically know everything about film. I still hated him, and I was still tormented by the idea that he was out there, somewhere. But then I would remember the other guy, the one who said that Oscar Wilde was a computer program and that his own work was a virus. I started to think that was an awesome thing to say, and that the guy who said it was probably awesome, and that his film, which I hated and remember basically nothing about, was probably a masterpiece. Thank you. So now that was the interview section? Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Nice. Thank you, Laura. Oh, oh, yeah. Maybe that half hour. Okay. Are we stand? This is it. Yeah, this is stand it. Stand here. This is it right okay. Here. Yeah. Is everyone following this? <laughs> it's going to be an interview section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in in reading uh, your essay, there's uh, bluntness and a sense of humor, kind of mm -hmm. seems to come like naturally out of bluntness. And I'm curious uh, if you had any influences to that style, or if you kind of came to you mean like the sense of humor? Yeah, yeah, and mixed with you know, being insightful. Yeah, um, I guess for stuff like that, I mean, so I also do comedy. I also have a comedy show with the tank, and like when I do that, I'm like trying to be funny at all costs. Like that's kind of what that show is. Like I walk on stage and I have to be funny, and that's like the prime directive. Um, Right. <laughs> All other times, it's like not the priority. Like I get that it'll sort of creep in, or I, maybe I hope that it'll creep in. Sometimes I sort of hope that it won't. Sometimes I like want to not be funny and just be like serious and hardcore. Um, but that me talking about that ends up sounding a little funny, so I just deal with that. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. But no, no, that's no, yeah. the mindset. And and like it's, it's like as a as a brief follow to that like. What that that like kind of interesting like delineation that you had like between like when you first started writing essays, mm -hmm. 
did they have that like humorous quality or was there like a delineation where like, no, when I'm writing an essay, I'm, I'm gonna go for serious, when I'm doing comedy, I'll do comedy. Or did you always kind of like have that like mixture going on? It's like, uh, I guess it was always kind of there. Um, I mean, the comedy thing started later in my life. That's like a recent development for me, re relatively recent compared to the other stuff that I've been doing like for my whole life. Um, so I always like, I guess I like being funny, but to be honest, I have a sort of like very conflicted relationship with it. And like, there's a part of me, like I was talking about Martin Scorsese movies and the thing I read, and like there's this, I'm assuming you guys are familiar with the work of Martin Scorsese, right? Like if you're not, it's just gonna be a long interview. <laughs> but, um, but like there's a scene in Casino, no, Goodfellas, where Ray Liotta tells Joe Pesci that he's funny, and then Joe Pesci's like, well, what do you mean funny? And he like plays a trick on Ray Liotta where it seems like he's insulted that Ray said he was funny, and he's like, a funny, like a clown, like I amuse you, like what's so funny about me? And it seems like he's gonna kill him, maybe. Yeah. And then it's all just a joke. Like, I've seen that so many times that I think I have like psychological problems from how many times I've seen it and how seriously I've taken it. Because everything Joe Pesci says when he's joking is like stuff that I 100% relate to. <laughs> you know, he's like, what's so funny about me? Like, do you think I'm a clown? Yeah. And like, I think about that, I'm like, yeah, he's right. Like, that is terrible. It's terrible to be a clown. And it's terrible to be funny. Uh, and then I hate, I, then I hate that I ever was funny ever, like once in my life. I was like, I should have not ever tried to be funny ever. Yeah. So I don't know what the answer is. That's, that's <laughs> phenomenal answer. I'm just so saying like, there's, the yeah, tension yeah. is there. And people seem to think the tension is funny, so it, it just pushes me further into it. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, Let me just say, I do have a show on July 26. I'll be here. We can talk about it. And where, where was that in? Uh, it's a Coney Island oh, baby, which is nice not in Coney Island. It's yeah. like three blocks from where we are now, less than three blocks. Formerly High Five Bar, right? That sounds yes. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'll be handing out flabby discs at that show yeah. and talking between songs and saying stuff that is like, might be yeah. funny, might not be. It's for you to decide. Check out his dance Thanks called Cyber Attack. Cyber Attack. Thank you. It's so All right. Thank you so much. Awesome. We're off to a great start. Great, great, great. All right, um, our next reader, uh, Linda Kleinbub, is a co-host of the Fahrenheit Open Mic. She has been a mentor at Girls Right Now, an organization that works with at-high-risk school girls who are interested in writing since 2013. She's a co-founder of Pen Pal Poets and received her MFA from the New School. Some of her work can be found at the Best American Poetry, the Brooklyn Rail, the Observer, Yahoo, Beauty, and multiple anthologies. She's a native New Yorker, a lifelong resident of Queens. Yeah. <laughs> Her first full book of poetry is forthcoming from a gathering of tribes press. Thanks for being here, Linda. Hey, hey, Linda. Woo. I think I remember that movie, and he says, Am I haha funny or I'm really been funny? <laughs> yeah, I think nobody wants to be really good fun, right? All right, Matthew, thank you for inviting me here. Um, this is my second time reading in autos only, and I like autos. It's a nice place to read. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. All right, I'm going to start with an oldie, but a goodie, because I got off at the Union Square for King Street subway station today. 
This is called The Sounds of the 14th Street Subway. The F train arrives, express to Queens, rattles in motion, click clack its feet. Kick the can, you know I can. Kick the can, you know I can. Next to me, quietly click clacking, piping on a PC, I look over to see Marilyn Monroe images. And the backup singers say, stand clear of the closing doors, please. Now the train is humming and rattling and humming and rattling and the music man is buzzing hip hop from white ear bit of buzz. I listen in. What is that tune? The train is really booking now, clacking and clicking and clacking and clicking, and a performer enters the stage. Excuse me, everyone. I'm sorry to interrupt your evening. My husband, my name, all I say is the name of Muhammad is I am your brother, and I'm here to feed the homeless. I have sandwiches in my bag because I work in the late night shift. This is where we reach out to the most homeless. Help us help them. And then he's gone. And the train is swaying again, and we're forced into its rhythm, whistling now, the wind whirling, swirling, boogieing underground. And a new performer enters the stage. Excuse me, everybody. I'm very sorry to interrupt your evening. My husband was shot, and this is my little girl. She's five years old. The shelter's turned us away. Can you help us get a bite to eat? And then she's gone. And the train is rattling now, zooming, zooming. Next stop, a longer ride under the East River, through underwater tunnels, many voices combined in one. Subway music, boisterous fun, people stand and rock back and forth. Backup dances swing to the rock and rail beat. There's a businessman crossing me trying to sleep. He got the beat down. His whole body moves to the train in sync. Out the subway car window, lights flash, blaring blue, red and hat, red, yelp and yellow, subway party strobe lights. Next stop is mine. Gotta go, people, and then I'm gone. Thank you. Woo! All right, um, Matt mentioned I was involved with girls right now. That's an organization that works with high school girls who want to be writers, and I was involved with them for the last six years. Any women writers who have free time on the hand, it's an hour a week, it's very rewarding. Uh, to do. And this was written on the very first day I met the first girl. I worked with three girls over six years, and this was after I met the first girl on the first day. It's called Girl Writing Now. On the L train to Canarsie, she writes lyrics on her forearm. She has no paper. A bluesy beat cadence she pens in purple sharpies. Dreams fall out around her, and a homeless guy smiles. She wears three feathers in her long, dark hair. With her purring gloves, she crafts words for Webster. She scribes her own saga. Shooting from this planet, she doesn't need a parachute. She'll loudly leap and land on her feet. Text message reads boom. Her reply is boom before the boom. When she reaches her destination, she gathers her dreams and allows the homeless guy to keep the one he smiled. This is called art. It was art. Abstract and alcohol fueled. Liquid paint splattered, graffiti covered and dangerous. Surreal. Savage beauty of Alexander McQueen. Spray paint guns aimed at a white dress. Fragile. An evening gown of peonies and roses disintegrated. You say, don't write about life, write about art. Was it not art? The finger painting of my hair, the pigment of your eyes, the sculpture of my thigh. You say, don't write about life, write about art. Was it not art, my solo performance, when you left me nude in the gallery, covered in snow? This is called Canvas Blank. 
What we remember begins with the paint and the brushes we choose. Acrylics, watercolors, all different. Some are thick-skinned, others fragile. Thieves go by and portraits emerge. What you thought was invisible now requires touch. What you thought you could accomplish now requires rain. Time passes. If able to start over, how would this river run? You saw clothing from candlesticks. Light up your creation and paint it while it burns. This is called The Painter. She paints where her love sleeps, in darkness with acrylics on canvas. She splashes the motions of her temptations, mixing pigments and heartache, rinsing her brushes and teardrops. Moonlight spills through the window. She turns the sins into painted trees, hangs them by the desk where she works, a memory. She prays in church forgiveness. Flowers begin to push her dirt and still hope, renewal, resist going back to darkness. Turning this day into hope. Confession does not cure her longings. Guided by her father's heart, she checks her phone messages, searching for her next paramour. This is called chores. It's not the rain. I know it. It's these birds that make that noise. I hear them. That noise does not cease like your expectations of me, always wanting more. That noise as I go through the motions on that old bed of ours. In your head it is your laundry I do tonight. The heavy load, shoving your soiled garments into the machine, watching the gyrations, your spin cycles. Oh, those damn birds, they're caw, caw, caw. How can I compose myself in this clamoring silence? This is called, It Lives in the Basement. Loneliness crept up the stairs, stood in a corner, observed the situation, searched for the easiest to infiltrate, curled around her unknown, smoke unseen. Loneliness holds her tight. She thinks its warmth is comforting. Quickly, she's left abandoned, alone, trying to make snow angels at midnight. How many doing that time? You're good. Uh, this is called Carnage. Basic catty corner at the back of the bar, full of poetry and alcohol. Romantics left empty, share stories, heartache, and anguish. Raw and honest, hearts exposed, they take turns. Slice slithers apart and place them on the bar. Tales of a slow death lasting too long. Drama of a love that shattered spirits. Morning and companion lost in a bottle. Memoir of a marriage held together with strings. They reminisce all night, slice slithers apart until the bar is red, covered with blood. Carnage of lonely souls. She looks into his blue eyes and goes behind sorrow and passion. Words evaporate. Leaning in, she whispers, kiss me. Lost in each other for a moment, they are healed. This is called stumbling. Thank you. This is called stumbling. Go on, this will be careful, baby. That's her heart. Soft, wet, fragile. He looks at her wanting to eat her up. She looks delicious, doesn't she? Vulnerable antique glaze disintegrates easily. His glass shards and visible pierce her skin even through the clothes she wears. The swallows will still fly over the blackberry bushes up into the maples. She's the girl with tears in her belly, digging in topsoil, planting deception, linking memoir to history. Jousting heart, only she understands this devastation. Newly slashed her skin pours poison, oily, dark, staining sheets, infiltrating purity. Never play games with ornamental lovers. Thank you very much.
So I'm really curious about um, your mentorship and um, how you got involved with that organization. Also, uh, what kind of impact it's maybe had on, on your writing that perhaps didn't expect going in or, you know, things like that. All right, yeah. Um, I was a student at the new school getting my MFA, probably around the same time you were there, and um, it was in an email that girls right now was looking for mentors, and I, writing is a second career for me, so it was fairly new for me in the writing world, and it, you know, when I looked at the organization, it was a women's organization that was helping high school girls who wanted to be writers, and I said, wow, I, I didn't write you know, really well with them. And um, over the course of um, three years, um, I worked with three different girls, and basically you meet with girls an hour a week, and you do like writing exercises with them, and then once a month you go to girls right now, and um, they have workshops like on journalism, or film writing, or like, different genres of writing. And it, it's really been rewarding as a, as a, as a writer, because every time, you know, I learn while, while they learn, you know, because I think you never finish learning in your life, like, I think, you know, all your life you're learning things. And, um, so yeah, it's been really useful because when I meet with the girls, we do exercises for an hour, and usually I'll do it along with the girl I'm working with. That's great. Yeah. And um, it's interesting you mentioned um, writing as like a second thing. Like, uh, what, where, where were you at when you really started getting into poetry? I, I've been writing all of my life. Yeah. Um, I started to write poetry after my parents found my journals that were more written like a diary, and they were like, oh my goodness, you know, they were like. I don't know, to send me to the nunnery, you know? Oh. <laughs> and uh, so I started writing poetry as a way to express myself and not be so um, prose-like that would be harder to, you know, decipher. So um, that's how I got into poetry, really, uh, probably in my early college days. But I've never been doing anything but writing. I've been writing my whole life. And then um, I went on a reality TV show that led to getting um, my first master's in library science is also my second master's at the new school. So it's like a long story. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Linda. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. Do you have books here? I don't. Oh, it's okay. But look up Linda's, yeah, soon to be published. Um, awesome, guys. All right, we're going we're gonna to take uh, a little five-minute break, and we'll finish up with uh, Hanny, uh, who I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing. And, um, we'll, yeah, a little break. Thanks for being, uh, it's a great turnout. Thanks so much for being here as well. Thank you. Okay.
Th thanks again, guys. This has been, this has been really fun. Another great reading. Um, Patty Omar Khalil is an attorney, writer, and photographer currently enrolled in the Writer's Studio Masterclass. His short fiction has appeared in Epiphany and Corium, and his theater criticism has been published in Culture Bot, Baraza, Mofa, and Arab Stages. He resides in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and is a graduate of the Wisconsin, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison and Rutgers Law School. Uh, thanks for being here. Come on up. And he's wearing an awesome hat. So, uh, uh, my favorite Martin Scorsese film is, uh, is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Is, we, can, we can unpack that all if you want in the interview. Yeah, have, sure. There's, there's more there than I probably realized. Yeah. Though, so, feel free to. So, a uh, little bit of background. Um, this piece uh, grew out of a work of fiction I long ago abandoned. Uh, it was sort of this like Philip Rothian take on all things Egyptian. Uh, my family's Egyptian, that'll make a lot more sense as I continue reading this. And uh, uh, as things just sort of came to a head historically back in 2011, I, I walked away from it because it no longer made any sense. And then I was asked in my program uh, to use this exercise, to use the work of this very obscure Turkish-American poet that nobody seems to have heard of and nobody in the class seems to remember, named Aisha Ushaf, um, to take a story you've been working on and start from the ending. Uh, and this is a very abstract, very sort of omniscient narrator that's sort of looking into the future, but it took me to places I didn't realize it would take me. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a wild ride sort of developing it and fleshing it out and seeing what sorts of things that uh, 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 it's able to reveal. Um, if it seems a little strange, heady, and esoteric, don't worry, I sent it to all my cousins and they all agreed. So uh, you're all in the same boat, even if you, uh, even if you uh, know the background. It's called An Edifice of the Imagination, and I will open it with two quotes. My darling, do not ask me where our love has gone. It was an edifice of the imagination that has collapsed. Pour me a drink and let us drink of its ruins and tell the story on my behalf as long as the tears will flow. In Kalfun, the ruins. Lives were lost. The seeds of miracles were sown, and no witness save the Delta. Miguel Mahfouz, Adrika Manana. Mazen will be pulled from a street in Cairo. He will not know by whom or even from which street. He will only know that moments before he was running, along with thousands of others, towards a narrow horizon, towards the absence of tear gas, rocks, and gunfire. Some will say he was pulled from beneath the arcade of Baylor's Alley, while others will say it happened under the highway, behind the museum. And others will say it didn't happen in Cairo at all, that he was in Alexandria, along the Corniche, or in Aswan, along a different Corniche. In any case, he will be thrown to the ground, or maybe up against a wall, or against, or even through a shop window. Imagine a shoe store, or an airline office, one that doesn't fly to Egypt anymore, from Amsterdam, or Copenhagen, or Mogadishu. His attackers, it will be said, came at him from within the crowd or from behind. Some will argue that there wasn't any crowd at all, that he was in a safe house, a makeshift triage unit, that it was somebody who betrayed him, who believed Mazin himself was the betrayer. They will be clothed in uniforms of olive drab or flat jackets of faded black and apparel indistinguishable from his own. Some will claim he wore imitation designer clothes like so many others on Tahrir, 
while others will claim he was dressed in rags like an ordinary vagrant, and others will insist he was dressed casually, yet deliberately, in the matter of a foreigner, the kind with easy access to an H&M and Urban Outfitters, etc. Early consensus is that neither he nor his captors wore the traditional galabega of a common peasant. Any suggestion to the contrary is dismissed out of hand as nonsensical, the work of a dilettante. Don't be cute, people will tell me. This is no laughing matter. The Republic, with Mazin coursing unimpeded through its dead-end streets, will soon collapse unless justice is distributed quickly in exact proportion to the demands of public order. And so the first punch lands within seconds, maybe to the temple or to the jaw. The first kick arrives almost in tandem to the ribs, the shins, the sacrum. Each blow will sting, then dull, then sting again. If he is to sustain any of it, Mazin needs it to rain down on him relentlessly, without pause. Nobody stops it from happening. The crowds will have already dispersed. There might still be food vendors, t-shirt peddlers, night watchmen, were this nighttime. Standing sentry before closed-up shop windows, one of which might have been the window Mazin was thrown through, if he were thrown. His attackers will use all manner of invective available to them, son of a bitch, motherfucker, swine, everyday profanities, nothing idiomatic or especially interesting. The facts might one day reveal how one attacker aspired to be a sculptor as a young man, or how another attacker bears an encyclopedic knowledge of Diego Maradona's playing career, or how another attacker is the father of two young girls he hopes one day can leave Egypt to Canada, Australia, marry a good man and put all this behind them. Each of them, no doubt, will be shown to be conflicted and perfect, and easily undone in their own very ordinary ways, just like you or I. But while any man's absurdity is the only compelling truth he possesses, his basic animal cruelty can easily be assumed. There's simply no story to be told. So Mazin's mind will wander to any number of places with each continuing blow. Perhaps a mother he avoided, or a father he doesn't remember, children he never had, mistresses and infatuations he wished he had pursued more vigorously, a song he had stuck in his head earlier that day, maybe Um Kalthum, maybe the Smiths. These notions will come to him in cinematic fadeouts of white or in flickering vignettes of the subconscious, and there will be a video, shaken, blurry, open to interpretation, taken from across the street, from a balcony above it, from around the corner, from a satellite, each in seemingly different corners and under varying qualities of light, some in daytime, some night, all attesting breathlessly to the same event before scattering across space and time. The video will be posted, shared, reposted, reshared, becoming its own self-reinforcing narrative, its meaning shifting from one audience to the next, resistance to some, vigilance to others. Other meanings will be attached to it over time, more than I am able to personally recount. It will be set to music, sometimes Western, sometimes classical, sometimes folk, sometimes religious. Nobody actually sees Mass's face up close, but I will be able to recognize him instantly. It will be his body that makes him famous, flinching, writhing, dulled, and inert, occasionally spasmodic, almost poetic. Overnight, he becomes a hero on Tahrir, or what's left of it, and he will be embraced by Marxists and Islamists alike, or what remains of either of them by this point. The Marxists will claim he wore a kafeya, drank domestic whiskey, smoked Cleopatra's vigorously and without revulsion. They will describe him as a leader, a teacher, a comrade, and a guide, who read Fanon in the original French and performed the Internationale on his oud. They will claim he sported an eye patch, the result of buckshot taken to the face in the early days of the revolution. For this, they will call him Sparrow or Barbosa, though no consensus forms over which Disney pirate he more faithfully embodies. Some will claim to have gone back within years to the American University where he majored in comp lit, or Al-Azhar where he was studying to be a man. One will claim, proudly, to have been cuckolded by him in high school where he also excelled in handball. 
and another will claim, just as proudly, to have been cuckolded by him while they were both in seminary, and another will claim, also proudly, to have been cuckolded by him right there in the square in one of the tents. There is never any woman to corroborate these stories, and no one will claim to carry his child, at least not initially. The Islamists will insist he sported a beard and fasted every Friday. The precise length of his beard and the duration of his fasts will quickly become matters of intense debate among the king camps. The Salafists will describe his beard as long and untrimmed, wild even, a matter of inches, perhaps even red, the marker of divine blessing. Representatives of the Muslim Brotherhood will avoid any direct discussion of Madison's beard, but will praise it off the record as a signifier of virtue, commitment, and dedication. The Salafists will claim Mazen fasted every Friday, from dawn to dusk, and that he offered a sermon more than once, but views differ as the precise subject matter of the sermon. Some will say it was the Surah of the Ants, while others will say it was the Illuminati. The brothers will claim he only fasted on the first day of the lunar month, and always deferred to the Supreme God in matters of prayer. When faced with this discrepancy, the Salafists will attribute it to a habit of evasion and mission for which the brothers are known. Criminals and liars, one of them will mutter to me, for pleading to Allah for forgiveness. And some will claim to know him by the callus on his forehead, that it was ripped and textured and bore the very name of God himself, and others will become violently angry at even the suggestion of such a thing, and no one will be able to tell me how he got there or whatever became of him. In the video, he will not be heard screaming, and it is instantly speculated that he must have been a deaf mute. Public opinion will quickly coalesce around this idea. In this telling, Mazin, unable to scream, undistracted from the sound of gunfire and explosions nearby, feels every blow to his face, every factor in his skull, more sharply and acutely than perhaps you or I would. His pain and this telling only adds to his virtue, a virtue on which everybody will immediately stake additional claims. One t-shirt hawker who has made a small fortune for him, selling Premier League jerseys to protesters, will attest to having never seen Mazin speak a word during the days, weeks, and months he was on the square. He will recount a silent exchange whereby Mazin purchased an Arsenal jersey using only hand gestures and signals. Some will say this was sign language, while other deaf protesters, and there are only a handful, will attest to having never met him. Speaking for an interpreter, a deaf Salafist will ask me, what interest is it to you? I will ask him the same in response, and despite my own misgivings, we will nearly come to blows. The slightly larger community of protesters who only fake deafness upon police capture, usually with little success, will also attest to having never seen him before. Within this group, it will be suggested that his gestures were not sign language at all, but the circumlocutions of somebody with no facility whatsoever for Arabic. And it is out of this suggestion, however marginal, that there will begin rampant speculation over who sent him and why. Alexandrians will initially say he is one of them, claiming to have heard him use the royal weed in conversation before being picked up on the Corniche, while others among them will say they heard him speak in an accent or a dialect they could not place. From Algeria, perhaps Tunisia, when asked if they've ever seen, heard, or encountered anybody from either of these countries before, they will each, to a person, say no. Some will emphatically say he spoke Hebrew, that they have pictures of him wearing IDF blue. Others, just as emphatically, will say he spoke Turkish. And some will insist that Hebrew sounds an awful lot like Turkish. It doesn't. While others will insist that Turkish sounds an awful lot like Farsi. Not especially. While waiting for a bus, I will meet a man who will speak of a cousin who worked briefly as a migrant in Spain who will attest that Catalan sounds an awful lot like Hebrew, Turkish, and Farsi mashed together, but I will quickly realize he is only trying to make conversation and will otherwise ignore him. In Aswan, they will claim he is from Upper Egypt despite his complexion or what can be made of it, while others will disagree about even the color of his skin. Some will say he's Nubian, others Bedouin, some will say he's Circassian, Maltese, or Greek, but nobody has seen anybody up close for many of these groups in decades. There will be difficulty getting any confirmation as to what precisely is meant by any of it. You know, my mother's neighbors were Greek, one woman will be overheard saying on the metro, but I haven't seen them leave the house in decades. 
She will contemplate checking in on them, but will later forget. Perhaps out of embarrassment or indifference, may have the vote. She will not know they died 27 years prior, buried in an unmarked grave at the foot of the Muckhuffton Hills. Mia Farrow, or somebody with her reach, will retweet about Mazin, and it will be seen by millions of viewers in a handful of Western cities soon going viral. Mazin will become an icon embraced globally, hashtags will proliferate, few will spell his name right, an army of speculators will descend upon Cairo from around the globe, each trying to determine Mazin's provenance and fate. I will recognize them instantly by their steno pads and their tendency to congregate in odd places, under the overpass by the Hilton, in front of the open sewer fronting the other Hilton. Within the city, beyond the square, milling aimlessly from one awkward diagonal and radial axis to another. They will speak to nobody other than themselves. Soon, locational matters will break down along ethnic lines. The Russians will keep to around the Hilton, the Chinese to the other Hilton. Brazilians will stick to the Marriott and Zomatic. Americans will scope for a place downtown, where they will quickly grow distracted and decide to stay. Each group will search for traces of Mazin, perhaps a droplet of blood or a strand of hair, anybody who can make a verifiable ID, a personable Russian will offer me a cigarette under the overpass. I will politely decline, ask what interest Mazin is to him. He will laugh, take a long drive off his duty-free goas, and wait for a traffic cop to escort me away. Mazin will quickly be given many identities, more than any of us can conjure in a lifetime. Urban sociologists at Cairo University will claim he is actually Hassan the Tarantula, a seldom-strained street fighter who long ago took over the slums of Nevada. Their opposite numbers at Helwan University will dispute this, that Mbaba is actually under the control of a diminutive, sword-wielding martial artist named Amina the Blade. Some will suggest that Mazin and Amina are connected, whether strategically or, it is suggested, romantically. A treatment for a soft porn, or passes for soft porn in Egypt, think adult situations and moderately low necklines, will be written about them and will be quickly green-lighted for adaptation. Ahmed Ez, and despite her age, Nadia Gindi, will be linked to the project and will screen later that spring, but only once, during the eve. Audience members will leave in droves, proclaiming rather anxiously, we brought our daughters to see this, and the film will immediately be removed from every theater in the country. Bootleg copies will be circulated in VHS as a form of samizdat among connoisseurs of the cultural film genre. The soft porn will later be heavily edited and remarketed as a rom-com, or what passes for a rom-com in Egypt. Think no touching and near anyone else. The crowd still won't come. It will remain in theaters for months anyways. At the dinner table, an aunt will ask what I know about Mazin, but between mouthfuls of Malfeya and Rice and will demure, she will go on to describe a vast conspiracy concocted in London, Washington, and Tel Aviv to divide Egypt into three, with Mazin at the very center of it. I'll ask her in what capacity, and she will say, pick one. I'll ask her for what purpose, and she will say, finish your rice. Another aunt, busy Shelley Oprah, will call out from the kitchen that Mazin is actually an agent of the Qataris, but won't elaborate further. Television commentary will soon begin to conflate both views angrily and breathlessly. Mazin's fate will soon become intertwined closely with whichever camp one identifies with most. For those who believe Mazin was a deaf mute, it will be assumed that he is bludgeoned by the police to within an inch of his life beneath the overpass by the Hilton. Within the deaf mute camp, who will come to be known as the neo certists Views will diverge over what happens beyond this point. All will agree he lives out his days in a vegetative state at the prison hospital in Tura. One school of thought will hold that he is left to die of dehydration. Another will claim that he is accidentally given a lethal dosage of muscle relaxant by an overeager nurse desperate to make a name for herself, the latest in a series of copycat acts. For those who believe him an agent of the countries, agentists, we will call them, Mazin will take refuge in the U.S. Embassy and never leave it. For those who believe him an agent of Mossad, he will come and go from the embassy as he pleases, even spend his winters in Dhaka. 
For those who believe he is CIA, he will only leave the embassy once every afternoon to get his macaroni and hot chocolate at the Four Seasons down the street. A waiter there will claim to see him on a semi-regular basis, will say he pays in euros, tips generously, purports to be Canadian whenever asked. This claim will soon be attributed to other waiters at other hotels, each establishment's concierge staff professing zero knowledge of the matter, but encouraging me to come back any time. For those revolutionaries who believe Mazin their leader, he will remain at large one day soon to return. The Marxists will say he's disappeared into the jungle, where he is organizing a guerrilla army for peasants and laborers to do final battle with the regime. That Egypt has no jungle to speak of, a little tree-covered author, will figure very little in this temple. The Islamists, now willing to concede that Mazin wasn't theirs to begin with, will claim he joined up with them in prison, that he recited the Shahada, permanently swore off liquor, sex, and drugs, and now follows the path of the righteous towards a world of eternal justice and virtue. Not infrequently, these three camps' views will converge as a matter of social necessity, and it will be agreed, albeit temporarily, that Mazin is a deaf-used Marxist Islamist agent of foreign powers. However, the matter of his death will remain an irreconcilable point of disagreement around which family, social, and business relations will grow strained. Neo-Sirtis, who keep closest to this view, will witness their increased marginalization in the ensuing months. Many will leave the country. Some will even change their names. Among the Salafists and the brothers of Torah, there will be sometimes violent disagreement over whose cell block he occupies. A disinformation campaign will begin at the prison, claiming that Mazin was actually slept up in one of the bathhouse raids. But nobody, for fear of outing themselves, will take responsibility for this assertion of how they became privy to it. And some will claim he, will, he was sentenced to death in absentia, while others will claim to have seen him in court represented by Amal Clooney. Some agentists will offer her representation as further proof of Western conspiracy and will call for a permanent ban of her husband's films. A Cairo cinema showing Tomorrowland will be ransacked and torched. There will be no casualties, in part because the theater will be empty. All sides will continue to agree it is the other's fault. Some critics will argue that Mazin's very existence was a hoax, that he was either deep cover, an informant, or the desperate illusion of some collective fever dream. One theory will hold that having survived the attack, he's put through a Stockholm process similar to the first kidnapping, and has been helping the new regime pick off subversive elements of the government and society at large. Mazin, it is now argued, personally orchestrated the bathhouse raids, and those who killed Regeni if he didn't do it himself. He races the scene of every church attack, every airplane bombing, weeps among the discovered limbs and smoldering embers, and vows each time never to fail Egypt again. He bears every burden, absorbs every fault. He is chaos and order, protector and assailant. Christ, if you require Christ. Dejel, if you believe the world even worthy enough for evil. Each of these is just a theory, even if I've been susceptible to a few of them myself. How, after all, do you get to the truth of a story that no longer wants to be told? A story that denies its own veracity before a single word of it can be uttered. A story that by its very utterance impeaches the credibility of any who try to tell it. I wish I could tell you. I really do. But I can only offer that the Mazin of each of these tellings does not align with the one I have known, a deeply troubled and ineffectual young man grasping desperately for meaning in his life, one who didn't die that night, if it were ever night, but who couldn't possibly have survived it either. I have held fast to the belief that as the tear gas flew and the rocks rained down from the rooftops, Mazin not only escaped his captors, he actually killed them, with his own bare hands. And then he Towards where, I couldn't tell you. Towards what fate is really anyone's guess. Know only that if you were to find him now, he couldn't remember his own name. If you were to tell him what happened, he wouldn't believe a word that you said. And though I still see him from time to time, he evaporates instantly on double tape. 
It happened at the airport, in fact, as I was recently on my way out of the country, though it is now already a dispute in which terminal and in what role. Some say he was mopping the bathroom floor at domestic arrivals, while others say he was working an espresso machine at the Alitalia gate. All agree that our eyes did not meet, even as I tipped him. Nobody knows that I gave him a good long look anyways, or as long as the moment allowed. So at least one of us would always know that it happened, so that I would never have to take anyone else's word for it, not even his own. Thank you. Sort of I'd be happy to. <laughs> what the fuck was getting shot around? No, no. Uh, <laughs> so, actually, the way the way you wrote this, the perspective you wrote it from, it actually reminded me of this author, Stephen Milhauser, who often takes this position in his short stories of writing from the mob standpoint, or writing from a culture standpoint, and does an amazing work, especially Eisenheim and Illusionist. That's like one of his most famous ones. He's probably really like this writer, I think. Um, but writing that way, this would be so hard, I believe, because you're not so much writing a character as much as a culture, you're also writing about a culture observing an individual, which again is, is what Milhouse does, and so I remind really that so much. And uh, my, my curiosity is um, how you kind of arrive at that style for writing this piece. Um, yeah. Well, you know, truthfully, uh, my very early drafts of it when it was just sort of a simple two-pager for class, and this is, you know, maybe four years ago in 2015, I had a lot of fun with it. It was actually pretty easy. And not knowing uh, Milhauser's material, I will say that it helped me tremendously that I knew the culture so well. And, and this is an important thing, that is a culture that I have always seen myself as being very much on the outside of. Uh, so in a lot of respects, um, uh, I was pulling a whole range of experiences and observations uh, to the point that when this got published last year and my dad had a chance to read it, he was just like, so which aunt are we talking about? I'm like, not a specific one. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, imagine something this aunt said in this aunt's apartment, even though those two would never have any reason to you know, even be sharing space. So um, in, a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, uh, it's not so much the voice of the mob and the voice of the culture, but the voice of the, the, the cacophony that all of that produces. Um, and you know, there is a spatial element to that. And I'm, I, I'm a writer that's very drawn to space and place. Um, and uh, this, in a lot of ways, was just sort of the, uh, the, the, the vocal sort of choral manifestation of that. Like, in Egypt, as I experienced it, was a Greek chorus looking upon this, uh, uh, this uh, very isolated act. Uh, what would it sound like to me? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, the, the, only, uh, the, the last thing I want to ask, too, is whether you think um, there's an inherently alienating quality to uh, simply watching security camera footage uh, of an event and where we're at, technologically speaking, in the world today, it's almost as if, you know, I don't really know what, what to make of that emotion of, uh, of, of watching some kind of televised societal breakdown. Um, uh, so what do you think about that? Wow. To well, finish on a light note. Let's finish on a light note. <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, so there was this incident, uh, I guess this would have been around uh, late 2011, early 2012, 
this was before the sort of counter-revolution in Egypt. And uh, it was sort of an internationally known incident that actually didn't really come to bear on this, but I think it's important to take note of, where this woman who was in sort of full face cover and everything uh, was protesting the regime and was beaten very savagely by police on live TV, and she was pulled away on camera. It's called the blue bra incident because it revealed that all she was wearing underneath was her jeans and a blue bra. Um, and I watched that happen live. Uh, my brother was living in, uh, living in Cairo at the time. He's a journalist. We were at his place with several other American expat journalist friends of his, and we were all stunned to silence. We didn't know how to process it. It was actually completely outside of our experience of the place, which is not to say that we were surprised by it, but I, I just remember a friend of his asking, uh, trying to put himself in the position of the police, and trying to think, what could possibly make you think that this person is such a physical threat to you that uh, um, that you have to savagely beat them to the point of unconsciousness in such a public way? And there's a lot of people who think that you know these folks aren't bright; they don't realize that people are watching. And I've always maintained that it's not that they don't realize that; it's just that they don't care, or it's just not something that really factors in the way of looking at things. And uh, if there's one thing that definitely um, uh, ties my writing persona with my, my, my attorney persona is um, you know, you're always kind of asking, or at least I'm always kind of asking uh, the world of any story I'm trying to approach, what is the normative order and who's invested in it and who isn't? And maybe just start from that, uh, 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 that simple thing. Um, the people who are invested in the normative order, you know, they, they will, they will uh, there's no end they won't pursue whether it's constant surveillance or police brutality or, uh, or, or you know, uh, a, a whole jumble of things that is way beyond my, uh, my expertise to start talking about here, but, uh, but it's a real thing. Yeah. Well, thank you. I thought that was an amazing uh, story. And uh, thank everybody as well who came. Uh, another great reading. Uh, the community makes the reading. Uh, it's been a really great experience doing this and getting so much support from people coming out. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Hanny, Linda, Yvonne. Tremendous time. Thank you so much. We'll be back, um, I believe, August uh, 3rd. I think we, we meet the first Saturday of each month. Um, and uh, feel free to come back. Uh, do come back now. Uh, thank you. Uh, have a great day. Okay. Bye bye.